This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. Don't go to people and say, hey, I've got this new idea and I kind of think it might work. I'm really excited about it. What do you say? That will scare the crap out of it. That's James O'Loughlin sharing some practical advice on how to get your next innovative idea off the ground. James is my guest today on Central Station. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. James O'Loughlin is one of Australia's most well-known presenters and entertainers. Many would know him as the host of The New Inventors on ABC Television and for his programs on ABC Local Radio. James has engaged with hundreds of innovators over the years and worked extensively with organisations to explain how innovation happens and how people can be more innovative. He's also just recently launched a podcast with Professor Ian Hickey called Minding Your Mind, which explores the complex world of mental health. James is presenting at the 2021 Western Australian Secondary Schools Executives Association Conference on the subject of overcoming barriers to innovation. I caught up with James prior to the conference to tease out some of the tricky issues in this space. James has loads of practical advice for teachers and school leaders, and he gives his message with sincerity and great humour. James, innovation is a hard thing to talk about. In fact, it's so hard sometimes my brain starts to hurt because it's challenging. Now, I think you're an expert on two levels with this because, firstly, you've spent a lifetime talking to innovators, and you've also just recently done a podcast about the mind and brain. Can you tell me a bit about that first? Oh, well, the podcast is a collaboration with Professor Ian Hickey from uh, the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. He's one of the uh, country's leading mental health experts and advocates, and I used to speak to Ian on the radio. Um, and we just decided recently it would be great to uh, produce uh, a mental health resource on really common topics that people are kind of interested in and might need information in, like depression, anxiety. There's an episode on addiction, on um, are we governed by our thoughts or our feelings, on the body clock, uh, and, and just put them all in bite-sized 30-minute podcasts. It's called Mind in Your Mind to allow people to find out a bit more about their mind and, and how it works. And Ian's fantastic in that he, he knows all the science, uh, but he's great at communicating it in a way that's clear and simple. And at the end of it, you think, oh, okay, there's always like three pretty much simple things you can do to improve your mental health. So I think it's really interesting as a resource for people who might have uh, been challenged by their mental health um, or, or someone they care about is challenged with their mental health. But it's also just, I think, really interesting to find out more about our mind and and how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll make sure that there are some links to uh, that episode or that podcast in the description for this episode, I should say. And coming back then, coming back then to innovation and how that links into how our minds might work, yeah. You know, as, as I was thinking about a conversation, I thought, not another conversation about innovation, right? It can be very <laughs> difficult for people, right? Why should we be having this conversation now? And why, why, why should people listen to this one? I'm glad you asked. If it wasn't for innovation, we'd all still live in caves. <laughs> um, innovation is what kind of separates us from the other, uh, the other animals. Uh, that is Otters are doing pretty much the same thing they did a million years ago. We're not. <laughs> and that is because of innovation, the desire to look at our world and think how can we do things better. So it, it has become a bit of a, a loaded corporate word, but it's very simple. Uh, if you want 
what you do to be better, if you want to teach students better, if you want your school to be better, if you want your business to be better, that means looking at it, finding things that aren't perfect and thinking about what you can do, not to make them perfect, but things are rarely perfect, but to make them just a little bit better than they are, that they are now. And that's innovation. And we all know the world is changing really quickly. We all know that if we educate kids or run our business in the same way that we did 10 years ago, we're going to get left behind. Innovation is just working out how we can do things better. And humans have always done it and they always will. So there are two things going on there. You've explained that there's the looking for the things that perhaps aren't working so well and then the yep. looking at the ways of making it better. Which of those two things do you generally find are harder for people to do? They both can be outside our comfort zone or at least outside our habits, but neither of them are that hard. Uh, so the first part is we've all been frustrated at work. We've all had a customer or a client or a student complain or seen that they're irritated. And usually we just say, yeah, isn't it bad that that thing's bad? Right? <laughs> the first part of innovation is looking for opportunities for innovation. And that is anything that's not perfect. And it's really just changing your mindset. Whenever you're frustrated, make a note of it. Whenever there's a system that doesn't work properly, make a note of it. Whenever you see a kid who's, uh, if you're an educator, bored, make a note of it. Oh, see, that's, that's going to be a lot of note-taking there. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, I always think if, if someone's bored, they're not in an optimal learning environment. Um, and, you, and some people say, oh, no, things have to be bored. You know, kids have to be bored to rote learn stuff. Maybe there's a bit of that, but there are a lot of times when kids are bored where they don't need to be, you know, low-hanging fruit, assemblies. Uh, <laughs> is it really the most efficient way to put information into uh, into heads at the moment? You know, I've got three kids. Um, they're all, well, one's just finished high school, but the other two are in high school. And you just say assembly to them and they just start twitching. And I think that's a pretty <laughs> common experience. So we've got a template for assemblies and it's the same template pretty much as when I was a kid. But what's wrong with trying to reimagine it? How can we make it better? How can we make it interesting? Do we yeah. really need someone to read out all this information or can you just send them an email? But the first part of it, getting back to your question, is just changing your mindset from accepting the things that aren't perfect to questioning them and writing them down and making a list about them. Now, the second part is just thinking about it. And people always say, well, that's really hard. Like coming up with an idea to make uh, kids more engaged or to... to fix that system or to make assemblies more interesting, that's really hard. But it's not actually hard. It's just we never have to do it. And we don't. when we don't have to do things, we usually don't do them because we've got lots of other things that we do have to do and we do them quickly and we're too tired to do these other things. But if you make a habit of spending five minutes a day on innovation, saying, okay, I've got this list of five things in our school or in my business that aren't perfect and each day I'm going to pick one of them and I'm going to spend five minutes, that's not long, thinking about how to make it better, I promise you, you can have ideas. And not all those ideas will be good, but some of them will be. You just have to make yourself do it. And we are constantly surprised. You know, I run workshops on innovation and people are constantly surprised at the quality of the ideas they come up with. And I say, well, you know, why do you think that didn't happen before? And they always say the same thing. Well, because they didn't have to. No one sat me <laughs> yeah. in the room and said, you have to. When we have to, we can. Yeah, because it's working and it's not broken, so we're not going to fix it. So look at, sorry, yeah, look at COVID. Like we could have all worked from home 
uh, five years ago, we had the technology, but people were too set in their systems. There were cultural barriers. And in late March of 2020, within two weeks, every school, every business had to think, how can we do this differently? We yeah. have to change everything about what we do. Yeah. And everyone did because we had to. We could have done that five years earlier. Yeah, that's right. Now, you've you've had the incredible privilege in your time on The New Inventors over over many years there to meet hundreds, I guess, of uh, innovators, inventors, dreamers, tryhards, diehards, and all of those people. Uh, what were the standout characteristics? If you could think about just a couple of those really high-level characteristics of those people, because you've just talked about habitually thinking about innovation every day, five minutes every day. What about those people? Can you can you describe in a couple of very broad brushstrokes what they were like? Yeah. And, and a great question. I'll also add to that. Since then, I've worked with lots of innovative businesses and lots of startups and entrepreneurs, so I can add that experience too. So the first thing is how they're not different from you and I. And they're not different in that they're not smarter, more creative, more brilliant than us. Hardly any innovators are geniuses. Some people think, oh, innovators are all like Steve Jobs and I'm not like Steve Jobs. <laughs> like maybe 1% or 2% of innovators are like Steve Jobs, like a, a freaking genius, but hardly any. Most of them, ordinary people, all sorts of jobs, all sorts of IQs, right? Above yeah. average IQ, below average IQ. I promise you that is correct. What they have that is different is a bit of bloody-mindedness. So if you see something in your business or your school that isn't perfect and you start thinking about it and a brilliant idea doesn't leap into your head straight away, you might just get discouraged, you might think you're stupid, you might get bored, you might have that little voice in your head saying, oh, you're no good at this. <laughs> um, innovators will keep going even when they hear that voice. Right. They're a bit more bloody-minded, a bit more determined. And we can all be a bit more determined. So what I'm saying is it's not ability. It's not something you're born with. It's just pressing on. And I will, again, promise anyone listening, if you wrestle with a problem and you feel stupid and incapable and you keep going, you will almost certainly have an idea. Wow. Okay. So education, though, often comes under a lot of pressure. Uh, so when you hear about uh, arguments in educational debates in modern education, there's a push for extra creativity. There's a push for creative thinking, critical thinking. Everything has to have this kind of new drive to it. I've also known of schools where that's kind of burned people out and they've in ended up doing an about face. And maybe that, that whole thing of bloody mindedness, as you say, just got too much for them, I don't know. But they, they even then just did an about face and started to be say, look, let's just do something that's just a little bit more traditional, a little, a little, little bit more normal. Why does that happen? I used to talk about when I was on ABC local radio, I used to talk about the fact that it was wriggling around in a barrel. So all <laughs> of us announcers were sitting in a barrel and we had commitments and we had things that we had to do and we had things that we were not allowed to. We had to be consistent with the brand that was ABC Local Radio. But that didn't mean we had to be rigid little robots. There was still room for us to add little bits of our personality, little bits of other things that we found interesting. And I think this is similar. Sometimes in big institutions such as schools or the educational sector, you think innovation has to paradoxically come from above. We have to wait till we get all the data from head office and we have to wait till they roll out a program. But that's one way of doing innovation. Another way 
is just thinking about, and look, I get that educators are tied to a pretty rigid curriculum and they can't just go, you know, frolicking off into the wilderness in whichever <laughs> direction their curiosity takes them. But look for little ways to put a bit of icing on your cake, a little bit of creative icing on your cake. So if you're teaching someone about the geography of Poland, what's a little creative exercise that you can add to that to get them thinking, to get them being creative rather than just ingesting facts? I'm sure I, I feel like I'm kind of, you know, telling people how to suck eggs, but just look everywhere you can for a way of um of adding a little bit of an imaginative task, a creative task, adding something that you think will take their learning to a higher level while still being in the barrel and still hitting all the benchmarks that you can. And a quick word about data, if I may. Sure. You know, if you're teaching a, a year nine class of girls, right, you don't have to wait till the school or head office or the education department sends you all this data about what 14-year-old girls, you know, what enhances their learning and doesn't, because you've got a class full of 14-year-old girls. You can just ask them. Like, <laughs> one of the most, I'm amazed how little feedback uh, teachers get from their students. When you finish a, a, a unit on Poland or on Hamlet, why don't ask your, ask your class, say you've got 25 in your class, here's three questions. What did you really enjoy about this unit? When did you get bored? When I teach it next year, what suggestions would you yeah. have? And you probably get some smart aleck answers. Yeah, sure. There will be some gold in there. And if and if 18 out of 25 say, I was really bored when we did this bit, but I love this bit, isn't it good to know that? <laughs> That's right. So, um, my point is get your own data on a smaller scale and then that'll help you improve your engagement with your students. Well, let me share this with you. I tried this and I'll, see, I'll, I'll get your take on this. I was um, a technology teacher for 20 years and, in fact, I still do cameo appearances in the classroom every now and again because I, I enjoy it. But um, You look so young. <laughs> oh, thank you. So do you. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but, you know, after so many years of doing it and, you know, you run your projects and then you've got your programs and you've got all of these things, they just seem to be so pre-organised. It got to the point where students would come into my class and they'd say, oh, so what are we making this term? And I'd think, you know what, I'm just not going to give the standard answer anymore. I'm, I just looked at them and said, I don't know. What would you like to make? Right. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> now, of course, as a, yeah. as a professional educator, I've got in my mind this, uh, you know, a framework for thinking, well, I haven't just randomly turned up in my class. I do actually have an idea as to what's going to go on. But just to throw it back at them and say, well, what were you thinking, you know? What have, what have you got? <laughs> it really helped, I think. And that's, that's consistent with a big megatrend. So up until about 50 years ago, uh, one of the keys to success was knowing stuff. So uh, my dad used to be a, a boot maker. He didn't really. I'm just this is an example. My dad used <laughs> to be a boot maker and he taught me how to make boots and now I'm a boot maker because I know how to make boots. So these days, everyone can learn how to make boots. It's, there's probably 180 YouTube videos on it. The accumulation of knowledge is no longer uh, 
the most important skill because knowledge has been democratised and the internet allows us to know anything. What is important is being questioning, is being self-directed and motivated, as you're encouraging your students to be, is problem solving, is being able to look at a problem and come up with an imaginative, creative solution that is going to be better than the person next to you. And it's really important that education shifts from getting all the facts into into students' heads to giving them the skills to solve problems. So what you were doing was an example of that. So let's say I'm one of those teachers who is listening to this conversation and says, oh, look, do you know what? Right, that's it. It's time. I need to be more innovative. Um, surely those people, are, you know, if, if you're just coming out of that awakening state, it's probably not going to go smoothly. <laughs> How do you start to identify the barriers? What are the things that you can do to try to protect yourself a little bit at the outset so that you can at least yeah. have some kind of a half-successful beginning of your journey? So just start slow and work out what you can do without asking, without requiring the permission of four bureaucratic ladies. <laughs> so I'm not saying break the rules, but say, okay, I have this amount of discretion and that's, but I don't have that amount of discretion. You know, I, I have freedom within these confines. I'm wiggling around with this barrel. What can I do within my barrel that I'm standing in to add a bit of innovative value? What can we do? This is how we taught Hamlet this year. Sorry, last year. What can we do this year that perhaps shifts the focus more from interpreting the text to taking one of the themes of Hamlet and applying it in a creative way to a potential real life situation what can we do from go from learning stuff to applying it and 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 being able to solve problems and and i would suggest you start on a really small scale don't say okay last week i was a by the numbers teacher i'm sure not many people would describe themselves in that way and i'm sure not many are <laughs> and this week i'm going to be a completely amazing innovative teacher just just do it really gradually so say okay for 15 minutes on tuesday we're going to do something on tuesday afternoon at two o'clock we're going to do something we've never done before i'm going to do it with my year nine class uh, and we're going to look at hamlet in a very different way and i'm going to ask them to write their own 15 minute um story that, that begins with a, a character like hamlet or whatever and then you get a bit of feedback from it. Did you enjoy that? Was it? Did it seem dumb? Did it seem relevant? Was it helpful? And if they all say, yes, it did seem dumb, no, it wasn't relevant, it was stupid, then you say, okay, maybe that experiment didn't work. So I'll take the customer feedback. And remember this, all businesses are crying out for customer feedback. Every business, like you buy a lolly and they send you a customer survey. How was your you know, supermarket experience? Teachers have... They have as much feedback from their customers, students, as they want. And it's really easy to get, and you can get it really quickly. Hands up if you found that interesting. Hands up if you <laughs> yeah, found that's that boring. Right. Take that on board and make it better. Yeah, and I think that one of the beautiful things about students is that they'll give you that feedback honestly. So usually when I fill out a survey, like let's say, I get an, let's say I've had a, a customer service call with a uh, telecommunications company. They send me a survey, and I think, oh, look, I, just, I think I'll just click 10 out of 10 here because – 
Otherwise, they'll keep surveying me. They'll keep asking me, you know, I just want to get this survey out of my life. But I think students are probably a little bit different. I think they'll tell you with a greater amount of honesty, no, we didn't like that, or that was boring, or that was stupid, or that was really good. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things I've really wanted to ask you in particular is because of the range of experiences you've had across different industries and with the range of people that you've spoken to, is it... Is it the sort of thing where teachers can then say, well, hang on a second, maybe my immediate environment doesn't feel particularly innovative and I'm looking for a bit of inspiration. Can I look across industries? Is there value in that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I give keynotes to to businesses and organisations about how to be more innovative, I draw on examples and case studies from all sorts of industries. And what's important is to take a clear lesson from each one. So I might tell a story and say, it's quite a, you know, usually it's a memorable story and it makes you go, wow, and go, so the lesson from that is, see what that guy did? He questioned everything he was doing. Do you question everything you're doing? Do you look at, at all the 84 tasks you do a week, uh, every couple of months and think, is it possible that I could do a few of these better? And 80 times you might say, no, I'm doing that as well as I can, but there's a few opportunities for innovation there. So if you start having your, you know, kind of just being aware that you want to be looking at whatever you do in a more questioning way and thinking about how you might be able to do it better. Keep your eyes open for other examples out in the world. Just you you might see in the news or you can just Google innovative examples and, and, you know, some of them might seem not relevant to what you do, but then every now and again you think, hey, that's kind of like you know, something, a problem that I was wrestling with the other day and it might spark something. So let me come back to the idea of minding your mind. Let's say that you've decided to start small. You're going to be innovative. You've picked a really small place to start. You've had a bit of a look around and you think, right, I'm ready to go. And then you, you try something and then one of your colleagues comes up and says, nah, sorry, Colin. I like not this innovation. Can you please bring me a slightly more normal <laughs> innovation? And suddenly your whole world just starts to crumble or you get that, yeah, that, yeah. that terrible sort of slowly deflating balloon feeling about your whole life. How, does, how do you then start to manage? <laughs> how do you then start to manage that terrible concoction of awful chemicals that start to flow through your brain? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a very good question because people, uh, I think, see new ideas in the same way they see new new, new children that they have. They're, <laughs> they're kind of really proud of them, but they're kind of anxious about how they'll go out in the world. <laughs> and if anyone says anything like, that's an odd-looking baby, then, as you say, you are, you are crushed. And a lot of our self-esteem is caught up isn't it, in new ideas that we have. Like, I, you know, I write books and and whenever I show my new book to <laughs> my wife or friends or a publisher, I'm terrified for their <laughs> feedback. Um, I'll either be elated or devastated depending on what they what they say. Um, so, so the solution is to try and try and take the emotion out of it. I think what we when we have a new idea, particularly when we're starting, we tend to think this is my new idea. And this idea will make or break me. Now, WD-40, the very well-known household lubricant, is called that because they succeeded on their 40th go. Wow. WD-18 was not very good and WD-36 <laughs> didn't work either. 
So most ideas fail. And I think if you want to go on the innovative journey, you have got to uh, uh, perhaps recalibrate your relationship with failure. And instead of seeing it as a litmus test on your entire personality (laughs) and uh, the, the you know, worthwhileness of your existence. See it as a necessary step to go through. Your your brilliant idea might be your seventh, but if you give up after five failures, you'll never get to your seventh. So be comfortable with failure. Try and take your ego out of it. You know, you're judging ideas, not the person. Now, the other part of it is, is particularly in an institution like a school or a business, you have to get other people on board. You can't just change a system yeah. by yourself. And there are always people who will be conservative and unwilling to change. So my advice to people is do the maths, by which I mean <laughs> don't go to people and say, hey, I've got this new idea and I kind of think it might work and I'm really excited <laughs> about it. What do you say? That'll scare the crap out of them. <laughs> do the maths. So, so trial your new way of uh, teaching history in your class for 15 minutes with year 10, get some data uh, back. How did they go in the exam? What was their feedback? Then try it with another class, maybe for half an hour, and then and then try it more and more until you've got enough feedback, until you've got some results. So you can go back and say, last year, I taught uh, the history of the American Civil War in this way, and the average grade was 63 out of 100. This year, I did this new innovative thing, and the average grade was 82%. Further to that, I surveyed our students um, both years, and the first year, they were bored a fair bit of the time. And this year, they all uh, 86% of people said they were highly engaged. So, if you, so given what I've just told you, do you want me never to do that again? <laughs> I guess what I mean is put a compelling case together about the results so that it's dumb for people to say no. Yeah. Don't just go in and say, let's take a punt. Yeah, that's right. So here's an offer that you can't refuse. <laughs> so, yeah. so that would then, I suspect, lead into much more positive ways of developing some teamwork or collaboration. So that's, that's the preferred approach, I take it? It's different. Um, some people are good at, I mean, teachers are in an interesting situation in that in their class, they're kind of alone, aren't they? Them and the students. Yeah. And, and, and yet in the staff room, in the school, there are, well, some would say it's very collaborative. Some would perhaps have different <laughs> opinions, but it's great if you can find other people. So you're a history teacher. What's something a bit like history, maybe English, another of the humanities. If you can find other people in your school who are kind of like-minded, but both under, they understand the world is changing and education has to change with it and to give, to prepare students for, the, for um, the world of 2030 and 2040, they really need to equip them with, you know, lots of problem-solving and creative skills. If you can find some like-minded people, you can just meet up for half an hour every two weeks and say, I've been thinking about this. And they can say, I've been thinking about that. Hey, your idea and my idea, even though you teach English and I teach history, they're kind of a little bit similar, and but we've approached it from a different way. And then your idea, you did that, and that might actually help me doing this. And I found this. By the way, I made this mistake, and don't you make it. So, yeah, look for like-minded people, and um, and it'll make you feel less alone <laughs> and also will probably probably help you. 
Tell me, are there places where people can go to get help, like uh, uh, incubator places or you know hubs or things like that? What are the what are the common things that you've come across there where where innovators in that space have got help in along their journeys? Look. Yes and no. Like like for entrepreneurs and startups, there are many places available, some with state and federal government assistance, some, as you say, incubators and hubs, shared working spaces that have been set up to get a whole heap of startups together and, you know, hope that there'll be some, um, what do they call it, cross-pollinisation and they'll all, you know, make each other's <laughs> ideas better and, and that can work. But I, I don't know, I mean, in a school or if you're an educator or if you're a teacher and you want to go on that, I mean, you don't need any of that stuff. You know, like you can have great ideas on your on your own. You can have great ideas that you bounce off another teacher or your partner or a friend or whatever. Uh, you, you can, you know, I, I think teachers are just in a great position actually to try new things as long as they're not breaking any rules <laughs> for a short time with a small group of people, get some feedback. Like, you know, Woolworths would kill for that. Yeah. You know, Woolworths could say, you know, we've, we, we can try something really small and then and then when we do, none of the customers are actually allowed to leave the supermarket until they <laughs> tell us exactly what they thought of that. Like they would kill for that, whereas every teacher has that resource. What did you think of that? What worked? What yeah, didn't? that's right. We've got to change, I think, from top down. You know, I, I say this to companies, if you think – the leaders of a company, and the metaphor is the leaders of a school or, you know, in a classroom, the teacher, if you think they are have to be responsible for all the new innovative ideas, you're wrong. <laughs> people at every level, the receptionist, uh, the, the salespeople who deal with customers, they know where the problems are and they'll probably have great ideas to fix them. And I would say that the most underutilised resource in education is the feedback from students. Well, one of my, my kids went to a school and they did this big exercise where they asked 100 stakeholders to come in and uh, give feedback on, on for their new strategic plan over the next five years. And I was one of the people who was asked. I'm just a parent. I guess they got some random parents. And I went in and they were asking me all these questions. You, you know, should we spend money on a netball court or a library? And I said, <laughs> you know, my kids are in high school. I, I never even – primary school I used to go into the school to pick them up so I knew a little bit but I don't even do that anymore everything I know from this school is from my kids so how many of the, how many of the kids of you are you doing this to and they said I'm done <laughs> and I said well why not they, they know the answers they know whether they <laughs> need a library or a netball court how the hell would I know they know so ask the kids well, James, it's been really inspiring. I'm, I'm full of inspiration. I feel like I need to go and change the world or at least do my bit. Uh, <laughs> very entertaining. Thank you so much for, your, for joining us this morning. It's been great. Great pleasure. Great questions. Thank you. You've been listening to Central Station. If you think James's message would be helpful for a friend or colleague, then please share this episode with them. For more information about James, you can visit his website, jamesolochlin.com. And be sure to check out James's new podcast with Professor Ian Hickey, Minding Your Mind. You can subscribe to Minding Your Mind on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Plus, you can find more great stories of inspiring educators by subscribing to Central Station on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Thanks for listening.